0: Good morning. Welcome to Redemption. My name is Marcus, and I am one of the pastors here at Redemption. Um, it's just an honor to be before the Lord and with you this morning uh, to preach. Uh, If you are in need of a Bible, if you forgot yours and need one or if you're new or something you just say, I need a Bible, just raise up your hands. The ushers will be glad to bring you a Bible. If you need one in Spanish, we have those as well. Help yourself to those. Uh, Before I begin this morning, I'd like to quickly say that um, I'm going to use a word this morning that is a sensitive word. Uh, So if you have uh, children in the service this morning, if you want to check them in to uh, children's ministry, it's a good opportunity to do that now. Um, the word I will use is within the biblical context. Uh, the word is prostitute, and I will use that word often in the sermon. So uh, you can start preparing yourself to have those conversations if you choose to keep the kids here in service at the end of uh, driving home or if your kids have questions. I just wanted to put that out there this morning uh, for us. Um, So the conversations that will happen in the car this this morning, I'm sure, will be something surrounded about, and not just that word, but all of what I'm going to say this morning, I hope. Um, James chapter 3, verses 1, says to all of us who occupy this space in a service as preachers, that God will judge us more harshly uh, because of what we do. So what I'm going to do in the next 30 minutes, I have prayed and and, and tried to be faithful and steady and let the Holy Spirit move. But I know at some point in my life, the day my life ends, I will stand before the Lord and he will judge me based on what I'm doing here. So I take that very seriously. Uh, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray for your presence uh, here this morning. We thank you for your presence here this morning. Lord, we ask that you would move in a way that you've never moved before. Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit descends on the hearts. Lord, I'm just, I'm hopefully just spreading the seed. I pray that the seed find, finds fertile ground in the hearts of many here this morning. I pray your conviction, your encouragement, your rebuke, your challenge is present, Lord. Like I said before, Laura, I've, I've tried to be faithful in my study and let the Holy Spirit lead. And I pray that he does. In Jesus' name, amen. I've titled this morning's sermon with a question the question is do you have an invitation do you have an invitation when Annie and I my wife Annie and I were who we were dating I don't think we were engaged at this point we got I got an invitation to go to one of my roommates wedding and we lived in Denver at the time and the wedding was in well it wasn't the wedding was in Maryland and we flew out and I tried to warn Annie. I said, Hey, this, this wedding is going to be crazy because it's a West African wedding. And not just West African, <laughs> it's a Nigerian wedding. If you know anyone Nigerians, which I know a lot, it's extravagant. So, Annie and I, we, we get to Maryland and um, we get ready to go to this wedding. And on the invitation, it said, The wedding starts at three. She said, Annie said, well, we should probably, it's a 45-minute drive. We should leave here at 2. I said, no, we'll leave at (laughs) 3. She said, all right. We left at 3, and when we got there, no one was there. (laughs) You can ask her this story. Parking lot was dry. They were still setting up. They were still doing stuff. Well, because it's a big celebration. We went to that wedding, the wedding's long but Af- Africans, West Africans, right? The, the the procession, the celebration, the 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 food, the 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 bride and groom and the bridal party changed three times in the reception. The first time is your Western your Western gear, right? Your your tuxedo. The second time is your African gear with the head wrap and the gown and and. The, the 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 all the all the stuff that comes in our culture and then the third time is the casual and the, and the casual outfit and they're sitting in chairs that are 12 feet high and there's gold and and the food and the dancing and the celebration and 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 my cultural dexterity is, is at a high because I'm loving this I'm, I'm I'm looking at Annie and she's taking all this in and then I'm looking at all the non-western all the non-africans in the room and they're taking it in and I can tell the, the wheels are going in, 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 in their minds. And man, can, can we pull this off, right? Can we do this? It's such, we go all out. I'm Liberian, by the way. I'm from Liberia, West Africa. I probably should have said that. We, <laughs> we go all out when it's celebration time. I love a good celebration, right? Feasts, graduation, cook, cookouts, fish, fries, right, dinners, any kind of culmination, any kind of reason to celebrate to end a period of hardship or to end a period of hard work, right, we, even funerals in my culture. When we go to a funeral, at the end of the funeral, we have what's called a repast, where it's music and there's food and there's dancing to celebrate this person's life. Tons of celebration, reunification in the Bible, there are places in the Bible where where celebrations do happen in that way. When Joseph, in, in the book of Genesis, welcomes his brothers to Egypt, they sit and they celebrate. When David takes over and he welcomes Mephibosheth to his table, they celebrate. When 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 in the New Testament, when the prodigal son comes back, his father kills the fattened calf and they celebrate. This morning... I'm gonna work through, we're gonna work through together chapters 17 through 19 of Revelation, and we're gonna go from the ultimate judgment to the greatest celebration. In 17, where we meet three people, three people who are intertwined in their identity, in their character, in their spirits, of kind of the spirit of the age personified through these three people that we're gonna meet, who these three people are the object of God's wrath. They're on the wrong end of God's perfect justice. We see the prostitute, we see the great city of Babylon, and we see the beasts, the last days, if you will, of the wicked. If you plan on falling asleep this morning, now is not the good time. I said this in the first service, I didn't plan on saying this, but when I was 18 years old, I went off to the army and I went to basic training, and we had to wake up at 3.30 in the morning. I, I, I'm not sure why, but I know why. But we had to wake up at 3.30 in the morning, and I used to be so tired because they work you physically and mentally and all these kind of things, all these drills. Well, once a week on Sundays, they would let you go to church. I'm not ashamed to tell you, folks, I looked at the list of churches, and I looked for the one that had the longest service because when I went in there, I sat in the back, and I went to sleep. <laughs> I don't remember a sermon. I don't even remember the inside what that church looked like. I know that pastor, sometimes when I, see, when, I, when I see people dozing off here, I was like, man, at least I'm not the pastor preaching to recruits in basic training. Because all my friends did the same thing. We went there because the drill sergeant wasn't there. And I, I just, I, I never, I didn't open, sorry guys, I didn't open my Bible. soon as I got there, I just, I just crawled, I, I laid down. Like I didn't even <laughs> pretend. True story, Dr. Sergeant Johnson wasn't there, Dr. Sergeant Weiss wasn't there, nobody was screaming at me. I just slept. <laughs> Don't do that this morning. <laughs> Meet me in verse 1 of chapter 17. Then one of the angels, one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and showed a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the great mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abomination. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Of Jesus, Pick me up in verse 14. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him, are called the chosen and the faithful, verse 18. And the woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This part of scripture is the personification of a willing prostitute, one with a purpose to seduce and lead people astray, to tempt people into sin. This is not the picture of someone who was captured or forced into prostitution or participation or coerced right this is a seductress because of this seductress seduces people who lack wisdom this is the part of a plot of the devil because of the insatiable desire for evil amongst human beings many scholars agree that John is talking, the author is actually addressing one of three people uh, in the context that they had in the near future. The empire of Rome was so powerful and ruthless, and there were so many godless kings and emperor, they were likened to a prostitute because the city was so wicked, right? The, the empire was so wicked. Rome was both real and symbolic in this passage, right? With great opulence, great the height of power, the height of injustice and evil was present there. The height of wickedness was present there. This was a city and an empire where the saints of God were killed. As for the prostitute, scholars believe and have suggested three people, Jezebel, who was mentioned in chapter 2, verse 20, Cleopatra, who was once a queen in In Rome, and the last person, probably the most likely person that we're talking about here, is what the Romans call the Roman goddess of Roma, a Roman goddess named Roma, right? In in their coin that was minted in AD 71, she is is depicted on this coin as sitting on seven hills around the city of Rome. A prostitute is what John compares the city of Rome and the empire of Rome to. A prostitute, brothers and sisters, reduces what is loving to something that is merely transactional, something that requires a commitment to something that is void of any feeling. Rome was a place where children were sacrificed. Children were used as prostitutes. All kinds of wickedness existed in Rome. Rome was a city that was leading the world into immorality. Rome was a city that was leading the world into religious idolatry. All over the Old Testament, this is not new news in the Bible. All over the Old Testament of the Bible, the nation of Israel is compared to a prostitute, not only committing the act of fornication, but leading others to do the same. John is trying to tell us something this morning. He is saying that Rome is leading the world in doing as it is doing, spreading the values of a prostitute, spreading the ethics of a prostitute all over the world. If you're sitting here this morning and you're drawing a parallel to our current situation in the world, you are right. And if you are not, my mother used to say, you need glasses to improve your hearing, (laughs) or you need hearing aids to improve your sight because you're missing it. When I was a kid, when my, mom would, when my my mother would tell me things that I didn't want to hear, or she was warning me and telling me to do something, make sure you shower tonight. I would always look at her like this. And she'd say, you hear what I'm saying? You don't need glasses to see me. I'm trying to say something. Your ears work, right? Some of y'all give me that look right now. Don't give me that look like, I don't know what you're saying, pastor, right? Don't squint at me when I'm talking. My role as pastor... As preacher, it's not to be primarily a critic of our culture, but a discipler of the heart. My role is to reveal what is there, both in your heart and what you see in the culture, right? What is hidden in plain sight in our culture, I will just open and reveal. The Bible does that. I'm just echoing it. It's almost easy to sit and apply. Kind of this current culture and context that you see the parallels so far. We are so far, ladies and gentlemen, we are so far into Babylonian kind of mentality in our culture, not just in this country, by the way. I'm talking about the world at this point, right? Not just in Tucson, not just in the States. I'm talking about the world. We have given ourselves over to the prostitute so clearly that it's hard for us to see what's wrong with it. I remember the great Reverend Billy Graham says, if God doesn't judge our world, he owes Solomon Gomorrah an apology. You can see, if you're if you're focused enough, you can see Babylon's fingerprints, influence, and power in our systems. You can see it in our music. You can see it in our economics. You can see it in our education system. You can see it in our family structures or, le- or lack thereof. You can see it in our eroding morals. You can see it in our lack of love for neighbor. You can see it in our unquenchable thirst of, for consumption and everything possible. You see it in the longing for the next big thing. You see it in our journalism. You see it in the lack of integrity. You see it in the lack of ethics. You see it in the justification of shady behavior. You see Babylon, the spirit of Babylon, in our opulence. The attitude and the availability of anything and Anything, at any time in our culture, no matter who we hurt or who we affect, is the spirit of Babylon. It's a silent but clearly visible attitude and spirit that has permeated our age. This is a spirit. This is a movement, a current. It's a culture that was, is, and is to come in our world. It is, it is characterized here as a prostitute and also a city that has control of the people of the earth and has seduced the people of the earth with its power and allure. As Americans would say, here's the kicker. When God brings it to an end, the world will lament when It is destroyed. When God brings our current culture to an end, there will be people who will mourn. What's happening? Those who love and benefit from Babylon will lament its demise. People who exchange good for evil, the Bible calls, who exchange, who call evil good and good evil will cry when Babylon is destroyed. It says it in verse 18, 11. We'll, we won't have time to read that, but you can read it for yourself in chapter 18. Babylon. It's alluring, it's seductive, and it's cunning. But it also has a history of being deceitful. It has a history of enslaving people. It has a history of murdering people. Babylon is hostile in, in, in a history, it has, in its in history, its hostility towards the people of God. It has a history of a lack of justice. It has a history of invasion. John is drawing on the imagery from the Old Testament when the people of God in Israel were invaded by a a real state of Babylon and were taken into that culture and what they saw. Babylon's spirit of injustice doesn't just exist yesterday or 500 or 1,500 years ago. It exists today. It continues today. In our society, have you noticed that there has been in the last few years an increase in the call for justice. We are crying out for justice. As a people, you see it everywhere. We witness, because we sit in this culture, we witness the miscarriage of justice, where people who are innocent die or are killed, where the guilty seemingly walk free. In most instances, when someone is punished for a crime, it seems like someone else loses a family member we are all in some way dissatisfied with how our legal system, both locally and nationally, handles crime and punishment. Lawyers, judges, those accused of crimes, victims of crime, are mostly unsatisfied, not just with, with how things turn out, but how things actually go. We hear of tribal wars, political unrest, religious conflict. We hear of ceasefires, of peace treaties. But we resign, to, we resign ourselves to the fact that we can't satisfy fully our yearning for justice. There's a deep indifference and resignation about our situation because we see deep down in ourselves, if you're honest with yourself, that you can see that human beings can't possibly be responsible to execute perfect justice. Babylon will be judged. God's judgment will be brought to them. God's wrath will be satisfied, and it will be just. And it won't be a subjective standard. It won't be based on human knowledge or education. and we be based on God's standards, something that our sinful human beings cannot possibly understand now. If we can't satisfy our thirst for justice through the systems that we've created, what do we do? A few years ago, I worked at a church in Denver that helped people get out of poverty who wanted to get out of poverty. And most of the people that came to us, hundreds of them every year, were people who were coming out of prison or jail. And I would work with them. And at some points, I went to court. At some point, I went to court with most of them, a lot of them actually. Where I would prepare a letter. What would happen is somebody would ask me, "Hey, Marcus, can you go to court with me as my pastor?" And, 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 and read a character reference for me so that my sentence would get less, or et cetera, or something would happen, I wanna share with you two stories, right? One, one story, I went to court with a young man who had committed a crime. He had broken into a home and stole well over $100,000 worth of Civil War memorabilia or something like that, and I went to court with him because he was on the up and up, as we would say. He was, he was moving in the right direction. So I went to court with him, I read my statement, and his lawyer and his parents went there and, and we stood before the judge. And the judge, his lawyer, has done, his lawyer had done such a great job with the case that he was able to walk away. The second story was the story of a young man who was an orphan refugee like myself. He didn't have the money to afford a lawyer. His parents were not there. And I went with him in front of the judge. Almost identical crimes. He had broken into homes too. He had a two-year-old, and he went to prison for eight years. Something about that doesn't seem generally just. Something about those two stories stuck with me. I remember leaving the courthouse that day. I remember thinking, how long will this be like this? How long will people go to prison in situations like this, or be set free in situations like it was just imperfect. The people of God cry out. Both believers and unbelievers in our culture today cry out for justice. Our desire for justice, our appetite for judgment grows and becomes more in demand. That day, I remember looking at Psalm 13, right? 1 and 2, where it talks about David writes, How long, oh God, should I wait? We get angry. Because God, it seems like God is moving too slow. Some elements of waiting on God and and pushing things along are good, and God answers prayers through movements and people. However, if we all, listen to me now, if we all took justice into our own hands, the level of injustice in this world will be off the charts. I need you to hear me. If, we all, if I said, you know, somebody did something to me and I'm going to exact my own justice, and we all did that, injustice would multiply because we are incapable of exacting perfect justice. Are you with me this morning? If we were all judge, jury, and executioner, ironically, the level of injustice in our world will increase. I see this in places that are devoid of mercy, places that are devoid of order, in short places. I remember I was a 12-year-old as a refugee in the West African country of Ghana, and I remember they caught a guy who had broken into somebody's house or done something, but the neighborhood got together, and they got together, and they just beat him. That was justice for them. What about his family? I agree he's a thief, but what do we do? Our world is a corrupt place, but if God is absent from justice, it would be a terrible place. We all see, we all walk around, and sometimes we see the wicked prosper. We see kids in third grade and fourth grade who can't read and end up in the justice system. We don't recognize that that's, that's a justice issue. Hurt people want relief. Bullied people want fairness. Overlooked people want dignity. How long do we put up with the strong and taking advantage of the weak? There are millions of souls who have passed from this earth whose silent prayers of justice seemingly go unheard. It seems like no one gets what they deserve, whether the reward or the punishment. Most of us here have learned to live in a society where true justice is rare. We have developed calloused hands towards the hearts of people that that there that, that is suffering. But there will be a day. And that day won't be one day. That day will be the beginning of many days where justice and mercies will be brought for, will be brought to the forefront. That day will come for you, and it will come for me. Even though there is no date on the calendar we can circle and say, that will be the day, the day that God will come and end in justice, a day that God will provide living water to quench our deep desire for everything to be just, that day is coming. If you're sitting here this morning and you say, I'm still doubting, Marcus, tell me more. I'm there with you. The big questions of life we ask, is God just? Is God's justice the same as mine? Will God satisfy my my hurt? Will God be there? Will the just God be there for me? I'm preaching to myself this morning. I have two parents who were murdered when I was 9 and 11, and I haven't gotten justice for 34 years. God is sometimes either too lenient or too harsh, we criticize. How can God forgive the worst criminals condemned to prison when they come to faith? When he or she, he or if, if somebody is, is, is condemned to prison here and they commit a crime clearly and they give their life to Christ, how can that same person walk into heaven and see somebody who has lived their entire life for God? How can those two people be at the same place? How is that just? How can God punish a whole nation for the sins of a few? He seems inconsistent. God God seems too slow for some and too harsh for others. In the book of Exodus, chapter 34, in the book of Numbers, chapter 14, the Bible says, and I cling to this, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion, yet, yet, He does not leave the guilty unpunished. There are so many places in the Old Testament that God shows incredible mercy and incredible forgiveness that we forget, and incredible patience with people who have sinned that we forget. The Hebrew translation of those passages, it translates literally into, in no way will he treat the guilty as if they were innocent. So which one is he? Is he a loving, merciful God that forgives, or is he the God who punishes the, weak, the wicked and unrepentant? Which one is he? He is both. And it's astounding. It says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, The natural, the wages, the payment of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Don't you see? Can't you see? He is all we have ever wanted in a judge, both remarkably merciful and also very just. If I were to commit a crime and I go before an earthly judge, I am judged by him in a standard. Right? My lawyer may stand next to me. My lawyer will never take the punishment for me. If, I, if I'm found guilty, I go to jail not with my lawyer. If I'm free, I go home and a lawyer goes home. Here's the difference. If you, when you stand before God, your advocate is Jesus. He will take the punishment for you. He has taken the punishment for you. And he will continue to take the punishment for you. If you're interested in going more into this, there's a great book by Phil Biancey called What's So Amazing About Grace. It's remarkable. So when God looks on the spirit of Babylon, he says, I will judge you, Babylon. Babylon, you will be punished for the blood of the saints that you shed. God in this passage is giving us a clear call throughout history that there will be a day where justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. My question to you this morning, as we try to land this plane, is where will you be? Where will you be when justice, when God's justice is coming down? Will you be an object of God's wrath or will you have an invitation to God's wedding supper? Will you face God's justice or will you be an object of his grace and mercy? I want you to pick me up in chapter, chapter 19, verse 6 to 9. Where will you be? Chapter 19, verse 6 says this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of other things. Verse 9 is where the juice is. The angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In this little passage, God is describing what it's like when the church, when the people of God are dressed to the nines. When Jesus is coming, the redeemed of the Lord are gathered. God calls the church, the people of God, the bride of the Lamb, who is Jesus. The church, the saints are dressed up in fine linen, it says, right? It, it was, the Bible says it was granted to them to dress themselves. These are all believers of all times, through all times. Can you imagine that scene? I want you to imagine just really quickly. Imagine yourself walking. Let's say you made it to heaven, right? You you made it, and you have your invitation, and you walk in, and the angel looks at you and say, "Come here, you come here. I got you. Your seat. You know where your Jared? You want to know where your seat is? You and Trish, fourteen and fifteen. You guys are right there. Go ahead and take your seat. And he's just inviting people, and he just he just. It's such a beautiful scene. You're dressed to the nine, and you have made it. You know you have made it. Your heart is rested. Where are you sitting? right? The angel, just imagine. Bible says in verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb." You know how sometimes you don't have to raise your hand and admit this. When you get an invitation to a party and you ask, who else is going to be there? You want to know who's going to be at this wedding that you're going to. What table am I sitting at? Am I at 15? Who else is at 15? I need to know what kind of conversation is going to happen, right? You want to know who's at this wedding. Here's a little secret for you. It's an open secret. You know the guest list of who's going to be at this party. You know who else is going to be at this wedding supper. You do. You know who else you're going to be sitting next to. You do. You know, you, you might not know what food's gonna go down, I, I know it's gonna be good. <laughs> you know what music, you don't know what music's gonna, ha- what, what's gonna happen, but you know who's gonna be there. Can I tell you who's gonna be there? Can I tell you who's gonna be there? If you know, you got. if you got your invitation, you want to know who's gonna be there? Can I tell you? You don't want to know? <laughs> Open up the Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 3. These are the types of people that are going to be at this party with you. And I want you to see the thread of justice and God's perfect justice going through this. Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger for and thirst for righteousness, but they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, but they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When I read that, I I think of the saints of the past who have lost their lives and their prayers similarly went unanswered. I think of young men and young women that I saw in the war who lost both their parents like I did and, and are still following the Lord. And I think of people who are on the streets who still are worshiping God, who are saints, who, who, who do things behind the scenes that you've never seen, who pray for their kids who have gone astray. I, I, I see people fighting for peace in the world that end up losing their lives. I see people who are who are incredibly merciful and it seems unfair. And the world laughs at them. I see people who forgive people that they probably wouldn't have the strength to forgive. I see people who are, who are meek and poor in spirit because they know the kingdom of God is theirs. I see people who show the gospel of Jesus Christ in ways that we couldn't understand or comprehend. When Jesus went to the cross, this was our invitation. When, when, when he took on the punishment that you and I should have taken because of our sins, that is the justice of God. That is the fairness. That is the truth. That is the wholeness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is our advocate, and he stepped in our place. I don't know about you, but I have one person in my life who, who took a punishment, an earthly person, who, who, stood in, who stood in a way, I wouldn't say a punishment, who stood in a way so that I would live, right? And I admire that person. But Jesus Christ did something that that person couldn't do for me, right? He took on my sin. He took on your sin. He took on the sins of so many people on that cross. That was our invitation. When you accept that God has, Jesus has has died on the cross, and he resurrected to show you that, yes, I am in charge of all of this. I am just. I am fair. I will take on your punishment. That was your invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb. That is a picture of a God who is both just and merciful because the the wicked will will be paid for their punishment. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. That is a God who is both just and merciful. Would you bow your heads with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your true gift of justice and mercy. Though we try to do it on our own, we will be imperfect and the justice we try to bring forth will be imperfect. But God, it is hard for us to imagine how you will right all of these wrongs, how you will fix all the evil that is happening in the world, that it has happened, how you will do these things. But you know That the, the wicked will not go unpunished, but the just will see your face. And that will be the day that we all look forward to. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.